everybody. My name is Jacob Cates. I'm joined here again with Aaron. We are researchers for the AllFed organization, the Alliance to Feed Earth in Disasters. Today, we want to go over our findings on scaling up industrial food production in a nuclear winter scenario. So to give you some background on AllFed, AllFed is trying to put academia into practice, focusing on feeding people during a global catastrophe. So our work here is built upon that done by Dr. David Denkenberger and Joshua Pierce in their book, Feeding Everyone, No Matter What. In this book, they explore different options for uh, feeding people with alternative foods in a variety of global catastrophes. AllFed is expanding, so we have people from all around the world and we're trying to grow to uh, expand further research into these different alternative foods. Today, we're focusing in on one alternative food, that being cellulosic sugar. So we take leftover plant material, like corn stover, take it to a facility where it gets broken down so that we can extract the glucose. Some other alternative foods that were looked at in the book include single-cell proteins, mushrooms and fungus, leaves, and many more. The different catastrophes that were also looked at in the book are ranged from smaller orders of magnitude, more local uh, catastrophes to larger orders of magnitude catastrophes. One we're looking at today being global nuclear war, where nearly 100% of global food loss is affected. In a global nuclear war between the United States and Russia, there's going to be targeted cities that have a chance of where we would lose the industry that we could use to produce the cellulosic sugar. The cause of the winter itself would be from these explosions throwing soot up into the atmosphere. There's a chance that this soot would linger for many years over the Earth. This would be blocking out the sunlight, so you would have reduced global temperatures, and you would also have, since the sunlight is being blocked, the plant growth would be uh, declined, so we would have, a, obviously, a great impact on our food production there. There's going to be, initially, from the attacks, loss in population. The bigger loss in population, though, be resulting from the famine if a nuclear winter occurred. There's many variables that go into the global war scenario, so there's a lot of debate over how to actually model and simulate this. So what we did for our project is try and simplify it down with different assumptions. Our first assumption being the lost infrastructure from the targeted cities. Any uh, industry that we could have used, that would be the industry used for the population loss. So there's like a canceling out there. Our second assumption is that the leftover, the remaining industry and infrastructure that survives the nuclear war, it would be mandated by any remaining organizations, governments, that these facilities be used and retrofitted so we would turn them into cellulosic sugar facilities. Finally, our last assumption is that there's a four-month organization time. So the period before construction begins where we are doing design work and preparation, we assume that we could have a four-month period for this, similar to the United States uh, during World War II when they were retrofitting automobile plants for airplane production and uh, armaments. This was about a five-month period for that. So we see that as being comparable in this situation. In any of the global catastrophe scenarios, there's one question that we are trying to answer. Thank you, Jacob, very much. So the key question we are trying to answer is, how quickly can we scale up industrial food production? And there's a subset of questions in there. So, for example, what kind of foods can be scaled without the sun? That's a crucial point. How quickly 
how quickly can we do this? Because there's only a certain time window before global food storage runs out and where we would start to uh, starve. And the third one is how much will it cost and how much will we be able to produce? And I just want to give one quick warning. There have been some speaker changes in the last minute, and this is actually an older slide. You will find spelling mistakes. I'm very sorry, but everything on the content side is correct. Um, so what you're looking at is a very busy graph out of the book, Feeding Everyone No Matter What, from 2014, from Professor David Denkenberger. And it was an order of magnitude estimate of different alternated food sources and how quickly we could ramp them up to be a part of global food demands. And it's very busy, and I would just want to focus your attention on a few lines. The first one being the red line that's quickly declining um, after a certain amount of time. That's a worst-case scenario. That is if we are not able to scale up alternative food sources. That is our store stored edible food. And there you can see that roughly after two-thirds of a year, the major proportion of the pop uh, population will face uh, hunger and starve to death. So, But there have been some promising estimates regarding industrial foods, one of those being single-cell protein derived from methane or natural gas. There are chemical processes that turn these natural gases into protein. Or that another industrial process being taking biomass uh, like leaves or agriculture um, residues and turning them into sugar. And you can see that's a bright green line scaling up. Um, I hope you can see it. Uh, and the estimate was that we would be able to feed everyone with these kind of food sources in about one year. And that was 2014, and we dive deeper into the research. And to quickly give you an overview over the process, this is an already economically uh, achieved process that's already implemented, and we are taking agricultural leftovers or, for example, timber, so there's plenty of biomass for this process to work with. And in a chemical process, that gets turned into a sugar. Comet Bio is an industry you can see on this graph, uh, has patented one of these processes and is working um, with this on an econ economical scale. Yes, and in the end, there the output is human edible food, uh, in this case, sugar. And we did um, different kind of construction methods we approached to see, uh, to answer these questions, how quickly and how many people we would be able to feed this way. So first of all, we looked at a reference plant and just looked, okay, how many of these plants would we be able to construct today with our potential we have today with, uh, with no changes, no acceleration. Second one being fast construction, where we looked into overmanning, overtiming, or shift work, 24-7 work. And the last step was us looking into retrofitting of industries, where we looked into the flowcharts of several other facilities that, for example, worked with biomasses, for example, biofuel refineries, breweries, or pulp and paper industries. And there we compared the component lists to see how quickly we can retrofit them, and what would be needed. And we did a net present value analysis of these kind of sugars that would be pr um, produced from these uh, different endeavors to see how much they would cost, because that is an important indicator of how much work 
is needed and how many people we would be able to feed and how many people would be able to afford it. And we can see it's a rough $2 a kilogram, which is roughly an order of magnitude more expensive than today. So this fast construction um, will increase food prices, but it's still at a price range where it's affordable to the most people. And just to give you a rule of thumb, you need about half a kilogram of uh, dry plant matter or biomass to survive a day. So, and the most promising result was that pulp and paper industries to retrofit them was very promising. More, um, uh, you will see more in that in the later slides because these industries already work with timber and other biomasses and have most of the components already in place. So, let's look at just our today's budget and see how much, how many of these uh, facilities we could build. So you're seeing the budget of $450 billion. That is today the global amount of money that's being spent on new chemical infrastructure. We thought this is a very good indicator to see how much manpower and um, industry we have to actually produce new facilities and choose that as our uh, budget. This wasn't taken without a hurry, and this budget allows us to build around 1,500 plants at a time. And there's going to be a break-in period after they are finished. That's why you will see these staircases. Um, but to explain that graph real quick, there's about a one-year time right now to design these plants, and it will take about one and a half years to construct these. That's why you will see the first sugar production around two and a half years in. And you will see a first stair step and then another one because as a lot of project managers will maybe uh, confirm, you, the first time you turn it on, it won't run smoothly. So we are assuming a 50% um, potential of the capacity being reached on average in the first period of time until these plants reach their full potential. And there you can see that after roughly three years, we would be able to cover 20% of the global food demands and then we have a plateau where the next construction phases and it continues. Well, let's see how this compares to other fast construction methods. So we are still working with the same budget, but now we are looking at 24-7 shift work and construction, which has been the most promising in comparison to overmanning and overtime work. And we cut down the design time and the setup time to only four months. That is because there has been a historic example um, that has been uh, in the USA that was in World War II, the retrofitting of automobile infrastructure or facilities to produce uh, plane engines and other war machines. And they were able to do this in only five months. So that made us believe that it's feasible to scale this time down to only four months and because of the 24-7 construction time, this also in, um, reduces our construction time to around 24 weeks. And we can see that the first sugar being produced um, hits only, um, starts only at, uh, already at about one year in comparison to the 2.5 years before. And it will start and will grow gradually. And in the end, because we are limited by budget, doing stuff fast costs more it will be overtaken by the normal construction method. 
And the last construction method that we looked into was, was the retrofitting of already existing, existing industries. And one assumption we already, uh, was also mentioned by Jacob that it's going to be mandatory. So we are looking at all the industries and we assume they will be retrofitted. And the most promising one was pulp and paper. The big two steps you can see that will get us to around feeding 20% or meeting 20% of the global food demands after only one year. That's basically retrofitting all the pulp and paper factories there are in the world. And from then on, uh, the slower increase is because we are looking at less promising but still promising industries to retrofit. And after roughly four years, we will plateau at around 40% of global food demands since all industries we looked at have been retrofitted to produce the cellulosic sugar. And now to summarize this, there are some key insights. So we will be able after one year to meet 20%, realistically speaking, of global food demands if we stick to the budget of all the new chemical infrastructure. Not the order of magnitude estimate that was there in the book, so this is an important update, but also there might be way up if we are looking at the global budget in, in general in machining industries, for example. There. And the other key insight is that uh, nations today, if they want to prepare or want to act, should prioritize pulp and paper factories, and there should also be preparedness plans in that regard. And we did one reality check. So what we are proposing here is that the sugar production globally should increase in a month in a in one year by 2.1 to 2.7 uh two times yeah 2.7 folds and the retrofitting that took place in world war ii was an increase in war machinery output of about 2.4 in just five months or uh, six months in this case so that gives us a good historic example that this retrofitting is realistically achievable. And the last point being cellulosic sugar is affordable, which is the key point in saving millions. And therefore, I want to thank you very much for your attention. And there will be, I uh, just want to give you a few more information, informations if you want to get involved. Please visit our website, allfed.info. Or if you want to get involved yourselves, uh, there on effectivethesis.com, there are a lot of, uh, which is also an EA project, there are a lot of different um, projects where you can start researching yourself or help us with. And there are obviously, there's this book I've mentioned, and I will now give a little handout if you're interested, where you can sign up with your email. And I want to thank you very much for your attention. <laughs> Thanks for the talk, guys. Really interesting. Um, I've got a couple specific questions on the cellulosic sugar proposal, and then maybe a couple broader ones on all-fed and kind of food resilience work uh, in general. So I think the graph you showed last about getting up to 20% um, of global food production is pretty impressive as a result. And I was wondering what the kind of what the key uncertainties in that number are, and um, if it turned out to be much harder, uh, what aspects of the thing do you think would, um, would have gone wrong? Well, one of our big assumptions was the budget for 450 
billion dollars. So, and that, that's taking all of the industry, which if we had different alternative foods would obviously be split up. So the 20% would be if we we're just focusing on cellulosic sugar. So it might be decreased looking at multiple alternative foods if we had that same budget for those. Yeah, okay. That's, and I, yeah, I guess that links to the other question I was going to ask, which was, um, yeah, how does this fit into the other proposals for food scaling up that you guys talk about? So be it the methane or um, uh, what was the other one you mentioned? Uh, single cell protein. Yeah, single cell protein. Yeah. Or for example, you maybe have saw there's a poster upstairs about seaweed, which yeah. hasn't been um, in the ideas back then, 2014, which now seems very promising. Um, yeah, so how does it fit in? Uh, obviously, we don't want to eat only sugar, so that's not a healthy diet. We would, we would survive like that probably for weeks, but uh, that's nothing we want to approach um, for a long time. So we would be uh, scaling up different kinds of alternative food sources. That's why we are doing these more detailed analysis to see how much, well, bang for a buck you actually get, uh, how many... Uh, calories or what kind of nutrients you can produce and the key question being about the time and seeing that we could be uh, that we are able to feed 20% of the global food demand uh, in just one year is very promising it might decline after that that we uh, take the cellulosic sugar uh, to be a le sorry to be a smaller part of our daily diet uh, that could definitely be uh, we are in the there's a project going on right now. We are mapping how you would need to balance out and what kind of ratio you would need to eat these alternative foods uh, to have a healthy diet. Uh, but this is obviously showing a technical feasibility and it's an encouraging message that we don't need to starve to death, And um, yeah, which I want to emphasize. It's a very encouraging message, yeah. Um, so what happens next with a research proposal like this? Um, I guess there's a long way between putting together a paper like this and this sort of uh, kind of global industrial effort. Um, how do you envisage the kind of pathway from someone reading this paper or running more experiments related to this or are there kind of pilot mm -hmm. studies you'd envisage? Um, yeah, talk, can you talk a bit about how, yeah, the path to impact from this? Okay. Well, do you want to um, start? Or sure. We, I would. we also have members of AllFed looking at actually communicating with governments and organizations for how to be prepared. Because while we're looking at the alternative food, the other part of AllFed is actually being prepared to uh, use these uh, alternative foods and spreading around the information. So I would, I would say that communication and then also building up the research team to get more details into this since we're kind of scoping it out, the different alternative foods. So just kind of furthering that along, I think. Yeah, thank you, Jacob. I maybe want to um, go a little bit more specific. There's, for sure. example, one colleague called Zahil. He's looking very much into the financing and reinsurance of these scenarios. And, for example, um, global players or governments, they would insure with another party that if a catastrophe hits, they have to deploy food at a certain maximum price to prevent uh, people starting to hoard or uh, feeding, uh, fearing that they uh, would have little food, a uh, little amount of food. And therefore, the other parties are incentivized to invest into industry that could be scaled up quickly in case of a disaster so they can pay out. And so they would be 
interested in having this knowledge to be in contact with maybe biofuel refineries and have uh, so long-lasting plants like this that would span over decades and therefore getting long-term thinking and investment into these policies or actions. Yeah. Cool. Um, I think maybe there's time for one more before we go over to the oh, audience. And maybe just one more sentence yeah, because you asked uh, where, what are the next steps. Uh, we are. This is already a very global, holistic approach. Mm -hmm. So we want to look at specifically where all the industries are, what kind of nations would need to trade um, to get a diverse diet and um, yeah, where these areas are and like where these facilities are actually um, located all around the globe to get it basically to the nation, no, national level. Um, I think we're one minute left, so one more from me. Um, yeah, so I guess, so if, uh, if we were unlucky enough as to suffer some sort of all-out nuclear war, I guess there's a you mentioned there's a lot of uncertainty mm -hmm. over what would exactly would transpire. Um, I guess there's a range of outcomes from if we get lucky and it turns out not to be that bad, there isn't a nuclear winter or it's fairly mild. Um, on the other hand, you could have a kind of really severe collapse of industry, infrastructure, institutions. And um, it seems like on either end, um, either of the kind of scenarios I mentioned, this sort of thing might be less useful. Um, either it's all fine or these kind of industrial responses that rely on some semblance of kind of uh, infrastructure and organization might be tricky. Um, so I'm wondering about, yeah, what, how big is the space of worlds uh, in which you see this being a, a kind of useful response? Well, so um, uh, again, there's a lot of variables that go into the nuclear war. Um, the... In the so in the targeted cities, there's might be some loss of infrastructure that we can no longer use. There has been a lot of movement towards like in nuclear warfare, maybe targeting uh, the enemy's uh, nuclear armaments. So not necessarily bombing cities that would have the infrastructure, but uh, their other nuclear weapons. So there's a chance that we would have more infrastructure uh, there to use for uh, use in cellulosic sugar. So. Um, Again, there, there's a lot of assumptions, but it could be possible to and feed more people. To add on to that, and what kind of scenarios this would work? Well, in a full uh, industry loss, for example, through a solar flare that destroys all our power grids, that would be quite hard to implement. These are uh, ongoing research projects to see how we can repair or have um, spare power grids to work. But there's quite amount of scenarios that also already could hit this century where this uh, information would be very valuable. For example, uh, if we are looking at the smaller scale scenarios like a 10% agriculture shortfall, mm -hmm. uh, which is already quite drastic. We haven't had that one in like 200 years. The last one being in 1816 where we had an, uh, the Tambora eruption in Indonesia. That's a volcano that caused a big famine here in uh, Europe. And today a lot of the institutions in place, for example, the World Food Program, they are able to cope with like a 5% shock. Um, but after that, they start to fail or have problems as well. So there's um, almost a guaranteed chance this century that we will face like a 10% shock. So there has been one UK study um, that estimates we will face around a 80% shock 
uh, no, sorry, a 10% shock with an 80% chance this century just from extreme weather events alone. So you can imagine like a drought over Russia, a flood over Brazil and forest fires in Canada, and then we could have these scenarios. Um, so these are scenarios in which when you know our next harvest got destroyed, uh, globally speaking, where you want to start retrofitting biofuel industries, and it could already save uh, millions to hundred millions of lives. Great, thank you very much. I think that we are out of time, but thanks a lot, guys. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. <laughs>